And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. So we'll try our Easter greeting again. Alleluia, Christ is risen. Isn't it good to bring back the Alleluia's and the Gloria after 40 days of Lent? Uh, like most Holy Weeks, this past one has been quite intense. Um, if you've had the chance to join us for um, those midweek services, we had two services at least every day. I think I counted, I preached seven unique sermons eight or nine times last week, something like that. Um, it was very, it was indeed very intense, or if you even just read and meditated on the assigned readings and themes, you can see how much theological and liturgical ground we covered in a very short period of time. So we read the Passion narrative in all four Gospels. On Palm Sunday, we considered Christ's humility as he took on our flesh and as he suffered for us. On Holy Monday, we saw how our Lord's sufferings led to both his and to our glory. The suffering led to glory. On Holy Tuesday, we looked at that from another angle, but this time it was how the shame that Christ endured leads to both his and to our honor. On Spy Wednesday, we considered how meditating on even the most sorrowful parts of Christ's passion ultimately leads us to joy. On Maundy Thursday, we considered how the Eucharist makes us participants in Christ's sacrifice. On Good Friday, we considered God's love for us and his grace towards us and to the lost as demonstrated in Christ's death. Then yesterday on Easter Eve, we saw how we were buried with Christ in our baptism and how both in baptism and in Christ's descent to the grave, we had a jailbreak from hell. Then today we have the opportunity to meditate upon the Lord's resurrection. The resurrection of the Lord is indeed, and the resulting promise of our own resurrection, this is the cornerstone of our hope as Christians. The resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith. Without the resurrection, as St. Paul says, we're the most pitiful of people as Christians. Without the resurrection of the dead, we're just deluded fools. But with the resurrection, we're people who have hope in a hopeless world. With the resurrection, we are people who have purpose. With the resurrection, we have the answer to that most basic of questions. What's all this for? And Christ's resurrection is the down payment, the surety of our own resurrection and of all those promises. How appropriate it is then that we, that we baptize the newest member of our All Saints family here today. Just as Christ died and rose again, so little Rhett has died to sin and has been raised to new life in the sacrament of baptism. Now, Rhett is certainly too young to know what's going on, but God knows. God sees the big picture. God's promises are on display whether we myopic human beings recognize them or not. That's kind of the way the sacraments work. It's interesting that we see something similar in our gospel passage for Easter morning. We see God working behind the scenes, even though the people don't recognize it. They don't yet know what's going on. I've often found it puzzling 
that we don't even meet the risen Christ in the main gospel reading for Easter Day. We get only part of the story. We see Mary Magdalene, St. Peter, and St. John going to the tomb and finding it empty, but we're left without any resolution. Mary, Peter, and John still don't know that the Lord has risen. And indeed, it can be hard to find some direct theological teaching or even application when we look at the text by itself. Seeking for anything deeper than the bare narrative can be very frustrating for a, pe- for a preacher if this is the only text you have. Some of the best historical discussion I could find included one of the reformers making an allegorical interpretation uh, on the race between Saints Peter and Paul. I'm sorry, Peter and John. Paul hasn't gotten here yet. Uh, and, and he uses that allegory to illustrate the relationship between faith and love. So as the chief of the apostles, uh, St. Peter represents faith, while John is called the disciple whom Jesus loved throughout his gospel. And so this reformer, he observes that our love may often be quicker than our faith, but that it takes faith to see the empty tomb before we can truly love the Lord. And that's pretty neat, but it's not in the text. Another good historical discussion was a disagreement between several of the church fathers over our second to last verse where we read this. Then went in also the other disciple which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. So if they didn't know the scriptures that Jesus was to rise from the dead, what exactly did St. John believe in this passage? Interestingly, uh, this is a bit of an aside, Um, when we were reading yesterday's uh, passage about the burial, it looks like the scribes and the Pharisees had anticipated at least rumors of the resurrection, and the apostles did not. This was not on their radar. They thought the apostles would pull a fast one, and the apostles weren't even thinking about this, as we can see from our text. But anyway, so these church fathers, um, they're kind of like, "What, what does this mean? What did John believe here? St. Augustine and some others conclude that uh, John must have believed Mary's report and Mary's assumption that the body was taken away. On the other hand, St. Cyril of Alexandria and other fathers, primarily in the Eastern thought, the Eastern fathers, they noted that the uh, neatly folded grave clothes indicate that theft was very unlikely. Thieves don't make clean up after themselves. And so they concluded then that St. John must have believed that Jesus had risen, even though John did not yet have direct proof or even theological foundations for that belief. And this this debate never really gets resolved. They kind of go back and forth. A few centuries later, Martin Luther chimes in on this old discussion to note that the scriptures, as the trustworthy external witness from God himself, are really ultimately the only reliable basis for our faith, and therefore we need to know the scriptures well. And it's hard to argue with that conclusion. (laughs) But in the end, I must confess that I'm very thankful for our collect and epistle. I'm very glad that our forebears in the faith gave us something a little bit more obviously theological and practical to meditate upon. After a long holy week, I'm not sure I have the capacity for any deeper digging. (laughs) So in our collect, and you can find this on page 163 in the prayer book, We address the Father as Almighty God, who through thine only Son, Jesus Christ, hast overcome death and opened unto us the gate of everlasting life. 
So that is, we are identifying the Father by Christ's deeds and what those deeds accomplish for us. God's character here is revealed in Christ's resurrection. His character is revealed in the fact that our Lord has overcome death, as we talked about on on, uh, Easter Eve. God's character is revealed in his generous opening up the gate of everlasting life to us. His character is revealed in our redemption. So what do these two things say about God's character? Well, it says that his character is defined by love for his creation. He didn't allow death to claim us. He rescued us. Even though we rightly deserved and continue to deserve death and damnation, God's love is such that he has opened his home to us through the blood of Christ, through our union with his son. Second, then, our colic makes a request. We humbly beseech thee that, as by thy special grace preventing us, thou dost put into our minds good desires, so that by thy continual help, we may bring the same to good effect. So preventing in the context of our prayer book, the language of our prayer book, the language of the King James, um, it does not mean to stop something from happening. That's a newer use. But rather preventing in the language of our prayer book, the language of the King James, it means to go before. It means to trailblaze. So God's special grace goes before us, blazing the trail. And in this case, he goes before us by putting good desires into our mind. When we've been redeemed, when the gate to everlasting life has been opened to us, we still need God's grace and God's gifts if we're going to change. The good desires that rise up from our new birth, they are gifts of God's grace. And so then we ask God's help to carry out those desires. We don't rely on our own strength. If we're to live as Christians, We need something outside of us to make that change from the inside out. And then to also aid us as we obey the call. So in other words, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus leads to new life, which then leads to God's grace changing us and living accordingly by his help. In the end, we see that God is the one active in Christian holiness. God is the one working in our sanctification, even as we uh, do our best to obey. Now, in our epistle from St. Paul's letter to the Colossians, we see a similar cause and effect, a similar if-then kind of construction. So let's turn to um, our our epistle reading, Colossians 3, 1, page uh, 164 in the prayer book. Colossians 3, 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Everything that follows in our epistle is based on that first phrase, if ye then be risen with Christ. So again, we see the centrality of the resurrection. If, like our collect says, the gate of everlasting life has been opened to you, and therefore God's special grace is preventing going before you to create good desires, then seek out heavenly things not earthly things. Seek things where Christ is, not things that will pass away. 
In his commentary on our 1928 uh, prayer book, Massey Shepherd points out that this epistle concentrates the major themes of the entire Easter season, so that is the resurrection, the ascension, and the second coming, into a single focus. He emphasizes that Paul had a perspective that Mary, Peter, and John did not in our gospel reading. So Shepherd writes this, We should remember that St. Paul experienced the risen Christ as well as the ascended Christ, not merely a resuscitated body, but a glorious, heavenly, triumphant figure. Paul had seen a glorified Jesus on his throne. In our gospel reading, Mary, Peter, and John had not yet even met the risen Christ. Mary, Peter, and John were still dealing with the suffering and the shame that we talked about last week on Monday and Tuesday. Paul had experienced the resulting glory and honor. Now, in reference to that opening phrase, if ye then be risen with Christ, the reformer Peter Martyr Vermigli, he notes that we have certain hope of our resurrection, a hope that's founded on Christ's own resurrection and ascension, but... Nevertheless, we don't have the fullness of our own resurrection. He writes this, We have been saved in hope, but we nonetheless are still somehow under death. Although we have not yet attained the perfect resurrection, we are nonetheless engaged in it. The already but not yet nature of our resurrection, that should give us hope as we put the good desires given by God's preventing grace into effect. Because we are going to mess up. We are going to sin. We are going to be pulled towards the earthly things. But we are still called to seek the heavenly things. When we remember the promise of resurrection, we find that is a, a, a major way that we are enabled to set our affection on things above. When we've been raised from death, given new life in Christ, we should indeed be drawn toward good and heavenly things. Vermigli again notes this, in his glorious state of exaltation, Christ liberates us from every evil and fills us with all good. For these reasons, it remains our responsibility to seek his glory with care. Now, of course, we still do live here on earth. We must be in the world, but not of the world, as the scripture says. 17th century English divine John Davenant, he observes, We must see that Paul forbids us to seek and relish earthly things, but he does not forbid us to use earthly things, much less to obtain them. We cannot live without the use of earthly things, but they would not serve for necessary uses unless they were before acquired. Therefore, to seek and affect them means in this place to desire them with the whole heart, with every labor and effort, and to acquiesce in those things as in the greatest good. So in other words, what Paul's what's saying here in Colossians 3, this is not a call to extreme asceticism. It's not a call for every Christian to live the life of a monk or a hermit. It's not a call to quit our jobs, sell our houses, leave our families, join a commune. Rather, St. Paul is speaking to our motives and to our desires. He's speaking to those internal things that drive our actions and affections. Let's pick up in verse 3 of the epistle. For ye are dead, 
and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. So in what way are we dead? Well, we're dead to sin. We're dead to death, despite the fact that we do continue to sin, and unless the Lord returns very soon, we will all also die. Davenant likens this seeming paradox to the way that we would speak of a person who's on death row. He writes this, As in common language we say that one is already dead against whom the sentence of death is passed, so we rightly say that they who are born again are dead, or that sin is already dead in them, because in their baptism the sentence of death was passed against sin, and the execution of this sentence is immediately begun, proceeding daily and at length completed. In our baptisms we are buried with Christ and raised to new life. But we still live in a fallen world, and we still struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And as we saw earlier in our, in our service in the baptismal liturgy, we are told to fight manfully against these foes under Christ's banner. The promise of Easter is that we don't fight alone. His grace goes before us, blazing the trail, preventing us. Our captain, the Lord Jesus Christ, fights with us and for us, and he has already won the victory. We're just on cleanup duty. The sentence against our enemy has been passed. We're just awaiting its execution. And indeed, as our text says, Christ is our life. Christ has been risen from the dead, and he has shared that life with us. He has been glorified, and he glorifies us with him. This is why we sing Alleluia. This is why we feast, even getting second breakfast of biscuits and gravy after the service. (laughs) This is indeed the joy of Easter. And we say this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.